Thank you so much, Pastor Richard. I so appreciate you. So thankful for you, for these men I get to speak with, a joy to follow. Grant Castleberry, somebody just came up to me and asked me to sign their program, thinking I was Grant Castleberry, so that was exciting to me <laughs> because I, I gained seven inches, I think, so it's like a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth right there. I'm the only truth and love speaker who has played basketball in this gym, by the way, just to throw that out. As I think I've mentioned multiple times, I've seen J.P. Marshall dunk on one of these hoops, and I once fell and hurt my hip so badly I walked with a limp for three weeks afterwards, but that's okay. No harm, no foul. After this uh, session, I'll be in the tent and I'll uh, be around my books if anybody wants to chat after uh, this time before lunch. What a delight to be back and open the word and be on this theme as we start. I need to begin with a young man who grew up in a stable and respectable home. His family owned several vineyards and produced boutique white wines. This family did not perfectly fit Prussian society, however, because they were Jewish, and then as now, anti-Semitism is a real problem in our world. Their prospects changed for the worse, in fact, when the Prussian government declared that Jews, this is in the 19th century, could not serve as lawyers. When that happened, the young man's father dropped his Jewish faith. He changed his name from the Yiddish Herschel, which means deer, to the Protestant Heinrich, which means estate ruler. This man, this father, started attending the local evangelical church. He paid tithes, and he identified as a Christian. From the outside, it looked as if this man had converted due to a genuine heart change, but no such shift had happened. What had actually occurred in Heinrich's life was this. He got religion to get along. He believed more in morality than a personal God. He was what we would call a skeptic, as we heard discussed just a little bit ago. At this point, you're probably wondering, why are we talking about an obscure lawyer from a small German town almost a couple hundred years ago? What on earth is this introduction after? Well, it's because the man in question was named Heinrich indeed, Heinrich Marx, and his son was named Karl, Karl Marx. Heinrich's uh, nominal religion, religion in name only, being an evangelical in terms of attendance but not in terms of heart change, had a profound effect on his son Carl. Carl saw his father Heinrich put on religious airs and even use religion for gain, but not because of truth, not because of love, not because of the word we are talking about this weekend, conviction. There was no actual evangelical conviction in Heinrich Marx's heart. He was not born again by his own admission, and yet he was in evangelical circles. Is it any wonder that Karl Marx would later attack religion in general and call it the opiate of the masses, a mere functional reality in our world, not something grounded in truth. Where did that famous line, one of the most famous phrases in human history, in any field, 
religion as the opiate of the masses, and one of the most influential ideas in the last 500 years of Western history, of global history. Where did it come from? It came from a nominal religious home. But why talk about nominal religion with you this morning? For this reason, children are always watching their father and mother more than we know. Beyond childhood, who you're watching at some level is who you're going to be like. And this is true for good and for ill. If we are to endure in hard times then, really the theme, broader theme of our time together, here is what you and I have to do. We too have to watch. We have to look. We have to lift up our eyes and look at four glorious sights before us in this session. Four glorious sights. First, we've got to look to the courageous church, Hebrews 11, 35 to 12, verse 1. Look to the courageous church. Second, look to the cheering crowd, Hebrews 12, 2. Third, look to the crucified Christ, the crucified Christ, 12.2 as well. And fourth, look to the coming city, the coming city, Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. First, we've got to look to the courageous church if we are going to endure, survive, and thrive today as we can and God willing as we shall. We've got to look to the courageous church. If you would read in your copy of Scripture with me in Hebrews 11, 35 through 12, 1. Women, the author of Hebrews writes, received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's pray. Father God, please help us this morning to study your word with a heart of faith and trust, I pray. Please use this word to encourage us and strengthen us. Please give the gift of faith in Christ to any who have not yet received it, we pray, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Look to the courageous church first. This broader passage, of course, Hebrews 11, covers the importance of faith in general. In this section, Uh, We transition from a focus on the accomplishments of faithful believers, verses 32 to 35 of Hebrews 11, to the suffering of faithful believers. So just a few verses prior, all sorts of amazing pyrotechnic spiritual victories that God accomplished in the lives of his people. Here the tone changes. This is a tone shift, and now we are talking about the suffering 
of faithful believers in these verses I just read. Now, God does as God pleases for God's glory in our lives. None of us knows which path we are going to tread. Are we going to experience great, great victory and blessing, uh, prosperity even in earthly terms, or are we going to suffer for the name of Christ? There is not a one-size-fits-all narrative for every Christian that we can say, this is going to be your precise experience. One Christian thrives due to God's call. Another Christian must endure lifelong illness that never really goes away. All of that is due to God's call. The total sovereignty and perfect providence of our Heavenly Father is behind all of it. It is not merely allowed by God, in fact, pressing all the way in, in the strength of our biblical convictions. God appoints our trials, just as God appoints our triumphs. This is a passage, frankly, that preaches itself. And I think Dr. Lawson half preached it last night, which is always a fun experience as a preacher waiting to preach. When Steve Lawson (laughs) tackles your passage for you, you're like, all right, uh, honey, could you rebook the flight? I'm going home. (laughs) Let's look at the four-verse catalog of absolute devastation suffered in the name of Jesus. Some were tortured, 35. They were faithful unto death, Revelation 2.10. They loved eternal life more than earthly life. You see that in verse 35 as well. We're just moving through these first four verses. Some were mocked and flogged. Note that they suffered this. That's going to be an important word for us, and that word is challenged today in evangelical circles as being part of loser theology. Let's interrogate that idea as we go in this passage. Verse 36, some suffered chains and imprisonment, some were stoned. Verse 37, some were sawn in two, some were killed with the sword, some went about in goatskins. These were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. They roamed the wilderness. They lived in the roughest places of the earth. One scholar notes this about the catalog of absolute woe we just walked through. Quote, Zechariah was put to death by stoning for rebuking the people. According to tradition, Jeremiah was stoned to death in Egypt. Others were sawn in two, and according to Jewish tradition, this was the fate of Isaiah. Others were put to death with a sword. The clothing of the people of God signifies their poverty and being forsaken by society. They were poor, persecuted, tormented. End quotation. The summary comment on these faithful men and women is so instructive in verse 38, isn't it? After all that catalog of misery, we read just kind of almost a quick comment, a passing comment. These are those of whom the world is not worthy. You ever wonder that in your lower moments, in your tougher moments of the day? You may not have gone through this particular catalog yourself. A lot of us have not, praise God, and that owes to the kindness and providence of, the, of God. So don't feel guilty for not having had uh, the experiences of the, ver- of the past four verses. The Bible doesn't bring that to you. The Bible brings you, frankly, to the forgiving grace of God fundamentally, not to a load of law and guilt. But you do wonder sometimes what God's verdict on the matter of faithful saints is, and you even can question sometimes whether, 
whether all of this really even matters. Does this matter? Is suffering real? Does it have value? Because when you and I are in suffering, small, medium, or large, and everything in between, doesn't, isn't one of Satan's greatest attacks to make you feel that your suffering, small, medium, or large, is pointless. It's pointless. You're in this, you're going through this, but you're actually not an overseas martyr. You're just an American Christian anonymous grinding it out. What, what significance does your daily life even have? That is just about the subtlest device Satan uses to attack the church. It's not necessarily some amazing argument from some atheist philosopher. It can be, but I would say it's often the quieter attacks on your faith. Hey, Christian, your endurance here, it doesn't really matter. Your perseverance here, it's not really of any account. Your, your faithfulness and trial, you're your grinding it out day by day in God's power, meaningless. And what does the Word of God say about all this catalog of misery? These are those of whom the world is not worthy. You ever wonder, what's God's verdict on the matter? You ever wonder, what's the right side of history anyway? Well, welcome to the right side of history. Those whom God considers worthy. God has told you what he thinks about suffering even unto death, which is what martyrdom is for the name of Jesus Christ. It renders you, it shows that the world is not worthy of you. And Christian, these people are not super believers. These, these people we just talked about in Hebrews 11, these are ordinary Christians like you and me. They're not a higher class of Christians so that they, oh, they got called up to die for the name of Jesus. They are ordinary believers, and yet the world is not worthy of them because God has worked in them. And they were commended, verse 39, through their faith the author writes. Their faith itself showed that these ones were not actually shameful people. This is what Satan does in this world. He heaps shame and hatred and mockery on believers. In fact, this is the strategy of Satan in, in brief. Number one, reverse what is true. Reverse what is true. Does this sound familiar in America in 2024? Can you give me a nod if this sounds familiar? Reverse what is true or deny what is basically true. Number two, Pound those who dare to resist his lies. Pound them. Assault them in any angle possible. Third, strengthen those who parrot his lies. Doesn't Satan love to help to prop up those who will side with him and stand with him and, and speak his fork-tongued words? Satan, you see, seeks to reverse reality. That's what he's been doing from the garden. That, that was his original strategy. God spoke reality to Adam. God lined it out. And God didn't just say, don't do this. What did God say, brothers and sisters? You may eat from the fruit from every tree in the garden save one. Yes. What does that teach you and me about the character of God? Is God stingy or is God generous? God is an incredibly generous, kind, loving, merciful, tender, hope-giving, comforting God. 
That's the God of the Bible. The God who is stingy and raging out of control and hates to forgive is a pretend imaginary God. So don't unhitch yourself from your Old Testament. You keep that hitch strong as it will be because the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament is generous just as the New Testament God is. One God, unchanging in goodness. From the start, I repeat myself, a generous father. What does that say to us about our role as fathers? What is to mark us in the home in terms of our core character? Is it uptight stinginess, anger all the time, or is it generous, joy-giving, loving fatherhood that is convictional but is like God as much as we can be? Satan seeks to reverse reality, to repeat myself. How? How does he do this? Just a quick little breakdown of how we are seeing this play out and have seen this play out for millennia. First, reality is this. Following God is good. If you're following God, you got it good. may not always feel that way, but that is the truth. What is Satan's lie? Following God is shameful. It's worthy of shame. Some of you have had that experience trying to be a Christian witness, and you've literally felt shame wash over you just for speaking up in the coffee room at work. Well, I'm I think Jesus is good. And have you ever had this? Shame just assaults you as if you just said this horrific thing that that is terrible. You ruined everyone's day. Everyone gets quiet and weird, and now everything's awkward for the next five minutes. So you throw in something you really shouldn't say, you know, like, well, but it's for me, you know, or something like that. Well, no, he's the king of the universe, but, and you're speaking reality. But Satan, that's Satan. That's Satan bringing shame to you for telling the truth about Jesus. There's, there's nothing shameful in that. Breathe the pure oxygen of the Word of God and feel no shame for being a Christian witness, loving and convictional alike in Houston, in Spring, in Texas, wherever you find yourself. Second, reality is this. Marriage is defined by God. Marriage is defined by God. The lie is that holding fast to this is judgmental. There is nothing judgmental, not one one millionth of one percent in standing on the truth of God over marriage. The first attack of the devil is not on a bunch of teenagers somewhere. It's not on some sheep herders in the ancient Near East of random assemblage. It is on marriage. It is on a husband, and it is on a wife. Satan attacked marriage in his very first earthly attack, causing the fall. Satan has been attacking marriage ever since. Here's the thing. There's only one definition, true definition of marriage. It's one man, one woman called to a covenant relationship for life. We can have a discussion about what happens when sin enters the picture. There's some different views, and we want to be charitable and kind and holding different views from Scripture about divorce and remarriage. 
So we can have that discussion. But we cannot do this. We cannot call what is not a marriage a marriage. A man can marry that chair in the front row. He's not married in God's eyes. Man can, can marry an animal, truthfully. I'm telling you the truth. This isn't for laughs. He's not married. A man can marry a transgender man. He's not married in God's eyes. There is no such thing as a transgender wedding ceremony. Let there be clarity in the church. Let the people of God hold fast to the good confession and not give it up. And let faithful men who have been such sound preachers for decades go all the way to the end and finish well. And where we all stumble, as we do, we all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2, where we do not teach soundly, let us all be quick to repent and confess our sin to God. This is not true for some preacher or teacher somewhere. This is true for all of us. This is true for every Christian. Repentance isn't some weird thing that happens every three months or so on the calendar. Oh, honey, today's the day of repentance. Let's, no, let's, let's delay. Let's do this next month. Repentance, Martin Luther said, is the Christian life. It's a continual walk of repentance and faith and reclaiming the goodness of the gospel. That's what it is to live as a believer in this world. So you hold fast to reality, no matter what the world does to you. Third reality is this. There are two sexes. The lie is that there are more than this. I don't have to belabor the point. There are two sexes. Stand for this. Don't believe lies. There's no shame in standing for the truth. Fourth, reality is this. We must not approve works of evil. Ephesians 5.11, we must expose them. We must expose unfruitful works of darkness. That's not for the discernment bloggers out there alone. That's for the church. We have to expose unfruitful works of darkness. Why? Because we're angry and legalistic fundamentally? No, because it is loving to help people understand that sin is sin, that they haven't rightly understood sin. We don't camp there. We don't stay there always blathering on about sin. But we have to help people understand the nature of sin in order that we would get to the amazing truth about mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are of no account if sin is not evil and bad. So we have to expose unfruitful works in our gospel witness. And fifth and finally, reality is this. Love requires us to call fellow sinners to repentance. I use that word advisedly. Repentance. Just about the first word out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark is repent. Repent. This is not a word that you can cut out of your Bible in a Thomas Jeffersonian way. You got to keep it in your Bible, and you got to call sinners to repent in love, and you've got to call yourself to repent every day you live. We all do. So again, you want to know who a martyr is? A martyr is simply someone who says, when offered the kingdoms of the world for speaking Satan's lies or even just not challenging them, no. Nope. I refuse the terms. I am, I am playing this game by reality. I am going God's way. I am not going Satan's way. It's not just proclaiming Christ in the gospel. You've got to understand God has claimed the gospel and salvation. God has claimed all of reality. All of reality is God's. He owns all of it. So martyrs are not, to repeat, super Christians. Martyrs are in the Greek martyron, Hebrews 12.1. Martyron, 
witnesses, witnesses, witnesses unto death, Revelation 2.10. These are men and women who live by reality, but I do not mean mere A is true and B is false reality. I mean the reality that God is true, Christ is the crucified and resurrected Savior, and God's Word is the ultimate standard for truth. These truths we live by. But a martyr not only lives by what has been true, a martyr lives by what will be true, lives for what will be true. That's what verse 39 shows us. The martyrs had, we read, what was promised on their minds, so they were willing to die for God. In other words, they knew that God not only had redeemed them, they knew that there was a greater world yet to come. They saw this distantly. They they didn't see it with the fullness that we see it today, but they saw the greater world yet to come nonetheless, and it drove them on. It inspired them. So they pressed forward day after anonymous day, grind after continual grind. They saw distantly, we have the privilege of seeing the fullness of new covenant salvation. Through the new covenant, we have received, verse 40, something better. (laughs) Two words that sum up the entire idea of the new covenant. Something better. All the trajectory, all the momentum of the Bible is promised to fulfillment something good to something better. This is why we are Baptists. Are you a Baptist? There's your second conversion for the day if you're not. Okay. (laughs) It's a friendly joke. It's a friendly joke. In all seriousness, that one phrase sums up the hermeneutic of Hebrews and the New Testament more broadly. The new covenant something better. Here's Tom Schreiner on this count. Despite the remarkable faith of the Old Testament saints, something better would only come with the new covenant. The something better arrived with Jesus' death and resurrection, with the final cleansing of sins through Him. Hence, now that Christ has come, those who trust in Christ have experienced something better even now. You understand that we have the fullness of the promises, that is, the unpacking of that fullness. We do not yet have it in experience. We await the age to come for that eternal life, and yet we know that something better has come. The blood of Christ makes perfect atonement for sin and secures all the promises of God for the people of God. The martyrs lived according to the promise of something better that we now know with clarity. And brothers and sisters, we should look to their courageous example. We should live too for what is promised. Is that the language of your home? Not just the functional, uh, not, not, not just the formal theology, excuse me, of your home. Is the functional theology of your home hope? Not just the formal theology. We subscribe to this confession This is our statement of faith. These are the books on our shelves. What is the functional theology of your marriage? What is the functional theology of your parenting? What is the functional theology of you as a brother or sister living in your… What is the functional theology you have as a single man or woman? Is the functional theology of your life hope, joy, the goodness of God, or do you speak one language in church and a different language in day-to-day life. Well, the good news is the two can become one. 
This will happen in part if we, secondly, look to the cheering crowd. We need to look to the cheering crowd. 12.1, I think I said 12.2 earlier, mistake. 12.1, therefore, the author writes, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Say it with me, endurance, the race that is set before us. Oh, the great need of endurance. The hardest, I think, trait of them all. It's easy to be up and down for Jesus, isn't it? It's easy to be rocket high one day, but then crash to the ground the next, isn't it? It's easy to talk that way even about the prospects of the church. Guys, we got to throw a Hail Mary here. I mean, it's America. It's 2024. It's a presidential election. We got to we are in desperate circumstances. What are we going to do? We need something amazing and unprecedented. And when you go to the New Testament, what does it more call you toward outside of extraordinary works of God that God actually does, but does without any planning or work on our part to bring? What's the fundamental call of the believer, the Christian? It's, it's words like this, run with endurance. Did you hear any desperate measures there? Were there any Hail Mary passes thrown? C.J. Stroud can throw them as far as I'm concerned, baby. That's a Houston joke. Okay. There's, there's not really any kind of extreme crisis measure called for as the world darkens. You, you know what's called for? Endurance running. You know the least glamorous sport there is outside of run walking, which really isn't, I'm not certain that's a sport, but <laughs> different conference to talk about that, endurance running. It's not super exciting, is it? I mean, it's, it's impressive, it's incredible to run a marathon. I grew up in New England. The Boston Marathon is like a holiday. I mean, it's like a serious deal, and we would watch it. And every year we get excited, the Boston Marathon, let's, let's turn the TV on. I mean, let's watch it. And you watch it for about two and a half minutes, and you're like, I kind of got the point. Um, you're going to keep doing this for quite some time. And I mean, let's, let's tune back in in an hour and 47 minutes and see who wins. That, that, that's a real contest. I mean, this is a serious sport, absolutely. But it's not the most exciting is the point, right? It really isn't. And I say this as a former, washed up now, endurance runner. Welcome to the Christian faith. Seriously, it's not a sprint, is it? Is it represented as a sprint? Are you supposed to throw Hail Marys? Are you supposed to get crisis measures? Is there a new Christianity that kicks in when things get really dark? Now do we have to shift out of a gospel program and start bringing law to bear on society? We can't really preach the gospel that much. We've got to ramp up and we've got to take things. Is that how the New Testament talks? The, the people this letter is addressed to, like most of the people of the New Testament, are in difficult times. And the call is to run with endurance. Nothing particularly crisis-y there. Nothing really unusual. No major church program called for that's unprecedented. Just gospel steadiness. It's what you need too. It's what I need. Pretty hard though, isn't it? 
Isn't it easier to be like this as a Christian? It's actually easier. Way up, way down. You know this in marriage, you know this in fatherhood, in motherhood, you know this in everyday work situations, you know this in your vocation, you know this in living in the same place, you know this in being around the same people with the same sin patterns and the same struggles and you have yours that you bring to bear, right? The grind is actually the hardest part of the Christian life. There's nothing unusual called for. Gospel steadiness. Yet we rarely talk about this. We are much more excited about conferences on extraordinary measures than we are conferences on the basics. But the good news is there's many who have gone before us, according to this verse, Hebrews 12.1, and they have surrounded us according to the text, according to the Greek, and there is a huge number of them. In fact, in the original language, that is really the emphasis of the Greek sentence. Therefore, also we, such a great having, is the way it sort of woodenly reads in the Greek, Hebrews 12.1, such a great having, such a great, cloud of witnesses, is the focus. So it's not like four beleaguered people who are standing by the side of the road, yay, keep going, kind of, if you have ever done cross country, I did cross country in high school, in Maine, most races, it was like the dads and the moms in raincoats, you know, like, yay, okay, let's, uh, let's get home, honey. Not the most inspiring event, my parents were so faithful to come, so thankful for that. This is a great cloud of witnesses. That's what the text says. They're they're surrounding us now. They're cheering us on effectively. It's like they're saying to us, lay aside the weight that would submerge your witness. Give up that sin. Put that to death. Repent of that. It's not worth it. They're not in anger speaking to us. They're cheering us on. Set aside sin, they say. It's clinging to you. I understand it clung to me, but I've gone on ahead I can speak to you from the better country. I can tell you every sacrifice to lay down sin. This is what they're effectively saying. It's worth it. And they're saying this as well to us, I think. Don't sprint. Stop sprinting. Stop trying to sprint. Run with endurance. Focus on one mile after another. Stop being high as a kite and then crashing into the basement. In sum, they're urging us in in good cheer pass your test, and then pass the next one, and then pass the next one, and then the next one, until you walk into everlasting glory. It will soon be over. You're going to get home. I'm not talking about abstract Christians. I mean you. You are going to get home. God is going to do it. That's what they're saying. They're saying, one more sentence, God did it for me. He brought me home. Even as my head was laid on a chopping block, even as I was sawn in two, even as I roamed the earth, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, God was actually bringing me home the entire time. But there is another who was helping us onward, and his name is Jesus. So third, look to the crucified Christ. Look to the crucified Christ. That's what the author says to do. Looking to Jesus, 12.2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The witness of the, martyr, uh, of the martyrs matters greatly. We saw that their example of faithfulness unto death matters greatly, and they're the same people in my, in my second truth just a minute ago. <laughs> they, they, they paid the price, but then they sort of come back to the race and watch it and cheer you on in this vision of the author of Hebrews that is remarkable and inspired by the Spirit. But you're, you're not just supposed to look to them. They, they matter. The one who matters, of course, much more greatly is Jesus. Jesus is identified here in verse 2 as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Mark how encouraging that clause is for your endurance running. Again, you're all endurance runners. You just became one if you didn't know that. So congratulations on that. Please pick your bib up at the tent afterwards. Bibs are very fashionable, I can tell you that. Uh, That was really exciting in high school, Uh, very helpful for the image. Mark how encouraging this is for your endurance. First, Jesus founded your faith. You didn't found anything. Jesus founded it. But that's not a negative truth like it is on the internet. That's a positive truth because the reason the faith is going to endure is because God began it, not you. It's amazingly good news. There's no better news than this. Your faith doesn't depend on you. Your faith depends on Almighty God, and He has the resources to get you home. And even now, Jesus is secondly perfecting your faith. Jesus is the perfecter of your faith. Again, not you. Now, typically, even when Reformed or conservative preachers preach stuff like this, we hasten to qualify. Now, your effort matters so very much, and, and we say all those things, and I've got all those things to say because it is true that we are called to strive for holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14, and an array of passages. Work out your own salvation, Philippians 2, 13. But even there, for it is God who works in you. And you see, you got to situate this rightly. Here's, Here's really what I'm after. It's not that you're doing your part of the work and God's doing his part of the work and you got a bro hug here, a good clasp, and you two are going to, yeah, we're going to get this done. It is that God is powering you all the way to the end, and God's power looks like your endurance. So all of your endurance, she's with me, (laughs) all of your endurance is of God. You're not supposed to get tangled up in the metaphysics, the ontology of, well, wait a minute, how how do I know the divine energy is working in me, and it's not my own will, but it's God, how… What's the chemistry makeup of this spiritually? You're supposed to go, all right, what do I have to do day by day? What does the Word of God call me to? I need to do those things. I am not softening this one bit. This is not antinomianism talking. But as you're doing that, you're praying for God's grace. You're depending on God actually in the moment to work out your salvation And then you're acting. You're acting in boldness. You're acting in confidence. You're stepping up. You're even, dare I say, risking in your life for the the glory of God. You're taking appropriate risks where you need to um, in your existence. But all of that doesn't depend 
on you. And it's not even slightly tilted the divine way, so he's going to… It's all dependent on God. No qualification. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why did Jesus endure the cross, despise the shame, and end up seated at the Father's right hand? There is a three-letter answer. Joy. Joy. Is joy in your functional theology? Is joy merely theoretical? Yeah, 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 joy, joy, whatever. Okay, let's talk about real stuff. We got to get to the extreme measures here, people. What is the plan for America in two thousand? Joy. Joy is the plan. For the joy set before him. The, the word there, set before him in the Greek, is prokamenes. Prokamenes. It was set before Jesus. It was offered to Jesus by God the Father, who is a real Trinitarian person, who has real personal prerogatives in the Bible, and who matters tremendously. God the Father is all through your New Testament, all through your Bible. And he's setting before both Jesus and us blessings and rewards. The same Greek word is used of us in Hebrews 6.18. Our hope, too, is set before us. It's laid out by God. It's like when you come to a, a lovely home for some rest and relaxation and everything's laid out, it's all set up. And there's such a comfort and a, dare I say, joy when you find such a situation, such a haven. Welcome to the house of God. Welcome to Christianity as the Father performs it. Everything's set before you. Everything laid out none of it resting on your shoulders, all of it involving every element of your being, absolutely, but all of it driven by God, and all of it tasting like joy, like joy. Where is the joy, though, you may be asking? The joy that Jesus had set before him was going to his Father after the tests were passed and the work was done. And Jesus passed his tests. Jesus told us that he wanted to honor and glorify the Father. He was not shy about this. He said this in John 14, 31. In fact, he talked about how the world would know that he was of the Father. The world would know that he was of the Father because he was going to put a display of obedience on. This is what John 14, 31 says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that obedience, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Obedience put on display Christ's love for His Father. He lived with that joy on His mind of obeying a good Father, and then receiving the right reward at the end of the race. But wow, what a test it was, wasn't it? The cross, he had to endure the cross, and he had to overcome the shame that was poured on him at Calvary. And the text tells us he despised it, which means that 
He, he, he drank all that shame on our behalf in our place, and he triumphed over it. He didn't let that shame knock him down and ruin him. Jesus took on our shame and guilt so that we could stand innocent and guiltless before him through saving faith and faith alone. But Jesus' story did not end there with the cross. He was raised unto life three days after his death. He taught his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended to glory. And the ascension is barely talked about in evangelical theology, and I don't know why, because the text says Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where's Jesus? What's Jesus up to? What's he doing? The text tells us he's enthroned in glory. Do you think of Jesus as an enthroned Lord? He is. He's enthroned in glory. The ascension and enthronement of Christ, again, is barely mentioned among modern evangelicals, but it is very much mentioned in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, and here talk about the enthroned Messiah, the warrior Savior who triumphed, but didn't triumph generically, triumphed for you. He died for you. He died as a sacrifice for sin. And he's not just sitting there. Romans 8.34 says, Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's you. 1 John 2.1 says, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Jesus always lives to intercede. You and I have such trouble with intercession, don't we? Isn't this one of the most common experiences as a Christian? Somebody shares something hard and heavy with you, and what do you say as a good-meaning Christian? You say, I will pray for you. And then, how often do we remember? Let's not talk about that. We won't give percentages, right? We can easily forget I have forgotten, and then someone will text me, hey, thank you for praying for me. Here's the update. Your prayers helped me so much, and I'm like, that wasn't, those weren't mine. (laughs) I'm so sorry. It's confession time. <laughs> I, I do try to be faithful in prayer by the power of God in me, but I know one who never forgets. I know one who, who never has names slip off his list. I know one who is praying for you and not praying in fear, not praying in anxiety, not praying as he looks at you like, oh no, this one is not going to get there. I don't even know. What are we going to do? We got to send legions of angels. I didn't I wasn't planning on this person's bad journey. Sin is too big in their life. I'm not trying to be silly. I mean Jesus has you kept all the way. Jesus is praying that your faith will not fail. And because of that, thank you. Your faith will not fail because it is not dependent on you because Jesus loves intercession. You and I struggle to intercede. Okay, come on, seriously, bro. Get up and intercede. Let's do this. You got to talk yourself into it. You got to remind yourself. You got to set reminders on your phone, etc. And those are good things to do. Jesus loves to intercede. Jesus loves to pray for you. You know why? Because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. 
So you're going to get there, you're going to make it, but there's one more object of our attention as we hasten to a conclusion. Fourth, you and I need to look to the celestial city. We need to look to the celestial city of Hebrews 13, 12 to 14. I got to bring in an extra passage, okay? Bear with me. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is vital to understanding martyrs and understanding us. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We start this fourth section with a bang. The blood of Jesus has made us holy. The blood of Jesus is effectual. There is no need for the blood of Jesus to be represented in a mass. There is no need for Christ to be re-crucified every week or even every day. Once and for all time, Jesus died to make us holy, to give us a new nature, a new identity, a new standing with God. And so he has, and so we are. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp where he is to be found. He's not to be found in the impressive places and with the impressive people. That's where we always tend to think he's going to be. We, we recurringly think that as evangelicals. We got to bump this up, man. We got to elitify Christianity or we're not going to reach people. Well, we should be thoughtful and gracious and loving in our witness and we should answer questions and listen to people and have discussions with them and not be scared about any of that. That too is witness. We should proclaim God's truth tirelessly Every chance we get, we should not seek unforced errors, you know, bad behavior and unkind words that do mar our witness, and yet we can't elitify Christianity. Where do you find him? Where do you find the suffering servant, the true Jesus, not the fake one of the American prosperity gospel outside the camp? Outside the camp outside the gleaming city where men invest their time and energy, outside the philosophy of the Greeks and the Romans, as was preached earlier, outside the impressive people so often, outside the impressive places, Jesus went outside the city. He went to the camp. He went to the forbidden place. He went to the darkest realm of the world, and there he died. There he bore reproach. He endured it, and he didn't do so as a historical artifact. He did it as a sign of the Christian faith. Suffering is not over for the church. As I said a few minutes ago, suffering is not a loser strategy that some pietists used to practice in America, and now it's over. Now we're just going to win. Now we're going to Christianize. We're going to stop again, with that bad loser theology of suffering for Jesus. And now we're going to win. Well, I am all for salt and light Christianity. I am all for public witness. I am all for Christians holding office. I am all for John the Baptist demonstrations of truth before power. I am all for as much salt and as much light, Matthew 5, 13 to 14, as we can get. I want to train up young Christians and send them out into a dark world as lights for Christ in every vocation I can find. I'm in on all of it and more. And there's a whole sermon series to preach on that. But I can't think 
that the New Testament is now outmoded, and Christians used to suffer for Jesus, but now they suffer no longer. That is not true, brothers and sisters. This, This is the Word of God. This is true, and every man is a liar. This is the solid rock. And the New Testament is not outmoded or partially fulfilled such that there are books that you do not follow any longer. The New Testament is the agenda. We do not have a lasting city here. That is what the Bible teaches. So yes, maybe Christians have not been involved enough in the public square. I will grant you that. I'm thankful for Christians, young Christians, often young men, who want to ramp things up and be salt and light in a meaningful way. Good. That's good. But you can't overdo it. We're losing balance today. We're in an extremist age in seemingly every category. We can't lose balance. It is right to reject quietness, doing nothing for Jesus, it is wrong to change the Great Commission into the Great Christianization and think that our mission now is not really as much to proclaim Christ, it's to make law and win victories in the world and remake the world for Jesus' friend. Again, good intentions, but that is Jesus' role alone. We're not building a lasting city here. That's what the Bible tells us. We are exiles. Who wants to be an exile? (laughs) Nobody. And yet that is who we are in spiritual terms in following Christ. Take heart then. Your work to preach Christ, make disciples, baptize believers, and teach them to obey the whole counsel of God matters. In Matthew 28, 16 to 20, it's not nations, by the way, who are being baptized. It's individual disciples. It's ta ethne, and then it's the disciples who come from those nations who are being one, baptized, and trained. So you're not having breakfast with Sweden at Panera, okay? You're not meeting Nigeria for lunch to disciple Nigeria. You're not. You're meeting Bob from accounting at Panera, and you're trying to win him to Christ by God's grace. You're meeting Ashley at the local playground who is lost in paganism, though she looks like a very respectable American, but her life is actually a tragedy in the making. And you are reaching out to her with the grace and the truth of God, and you will not compromise, and you will not say to Ashley or Bob from accounting, your life is fine, your sins are fine. You will say two things, your sin is killing you and will lead to eternal judgment, but there's a greater truth, there's a better promise It is the promise of God in Jesus Christ, and he will not fail you, and he will forgive you to the uttermost. He will forgive all your past sin, all your present sin, and all your future sin. And this is the promise of Christ I offer to you, Bob, Ashley, whatever their name is. This is what I have to give you. You see, friends, in conclusion, what is taught in Hebrews is our teaching. What is commanded in Hebrews is our commandment. What is held out as our hope in Hebrews is our hope. The awaited city that no man can build is our city. No man can build it and no man can destroy it. We are looking for that city. We groan even now. We long to be there. Soon we will be there, but we are not there yet. So Christian, keep your eye on the horizon. The celestial city is almost here. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these people. I pray that you will strengthen us in the truth. I pray that we will not depart from this teaching, but we will hold fast to it. I pray that we will be a people 
who are marked by grace and truth. We're all imperfect there. We all stumble. We're all trying to get that balance better than we do even this minute. But I pray, Father, that you'll work in us and you'll make us a mighty force in this world through ordinary means and help us to run the race with endurance. In Jesus' name, amen.